Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Perry Myers, who is a professor of um, German studies at Albion College. We'll be talking about a brand new um, uh, Palgrave Macmillan publication, Spiritual Empires in Europe and India. And the subtitle is Cosmopolitan Religious Movements from 1875 to the Interwar Era. Perry, welcome to the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, uh, you're most welcome. No, there, there has to be a backstory to this, or at very least, uh, share with us how a professor of German studies writes um, what could be thought of as a political science or even religious studies book. Yeah, that's that's the perfect question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The backstory may turn into a dissertation itself. Perfect. Um, I had a prior career to academics. Let me begin that way. I was an investment banker uh, working for American investment banks in Germany. And um, so I had a prior education. I have an MBA. This was prior to my PhD. And then I, um, living in Germany, I've read in all of my free time, literature and sociology of religion and everything else and traveled to London frequently. And because I grew up in the Southwest United States, I like spicy food. And so I got interested in India through the food (laughs) originally. And then when I started working on my PhD post investment banking career, I uh, was, I focused mostly on the late 19th century and early 20th century. And I realized that almost every German intellectual, whether they were a a literary figure or a sociology of religions person like Max Weber, they had all written something on India. And that's kind of the backstory. So um, I started in my PhD dissertation, I worked a little bit on Rudolf Steiner, um, who borrowed quite a bit of from in from his interpretation of Hindu thought and that just kind of steamrolled into this larger comparative project that uh, developed into this book eventually I, the the book in between my dissertation and this book was about German visions of India and focused specifically on how Germans traveled to India wrote about India during the Wilhelmine period or pre-World War I period primarily. And then this book this went to a different place and expanded to cosmopolitan religious movements in India, Germany, France, and England. So that's the sort of the- So there's the, the, there's the backstory. There's much to be said about uh, German Indology. And there's yeah. also much to be said about the love of spice leading one to India. I believe Columbus himself set sail in search for spice, but who knows? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, 
spiritual empires what's a spiritual empire um well that's that's the back end of the book um or the conclusion of the book uh, the book is basically divided up into two halves you might say because since i was dealing with multiple countries um for comparative purposes the front end of the book um served as a survey of what made these various uh religious movements or what commonalities these various re religious movements had and i discovered that they actually had quite a few even though their iterations and how they became uh, organized and so forth and so on uh, was very very different in each country they were all they were all sort of addressing the same the same set of problems in a similar way and and some of those affinities were they were they tended to all be anti-materialist for instance they didn't um, and to be to to clarify a bit they did they didn't reject the material world they weren't ascetic um but they they felt like it had become too dominant in society culture and in their nations and so they were attempting to sort of rebalance the spiritual world and the material world and another affinity is that they were all universalist in their views about spirituality and they all developed some kind of form of spiritual science they were all they all believed or supported the theories of darwinian evolution except they took those theories into the spiritual world and developed a, a, a theory of spiritual science which suggested that spirituality um, evolves or progresses uh, over time and um out of that they developed a, a really what is a historiography of spirituality and this gets to the back end of the book once i've established those affinities of these various religious movements uh, the back half of the book then um, depicts how these movements became idiosyncratic or specific to their own nations so in other words german cosmopolitan religious thinkers envisioned some kind of spiritual empire that was germanocentric um, as did the french in a, in a different way so they were taking the same set of spiritual affinities and ideologies and thoughts but they were applying them in their own nations um, and in the case of england empire um, in a different way to create sort of a Franco-centric spiritual empire. So that's uh, sort of where where spiritual empires comes comes from. The term. Uh, when you say they or the religious movements, which ones in particular are you looking at in your book? Um, there are several different ones. Theosophy is is one of the primary ones. Uh, it was most prevalent in uh, Germany, um, England, and India. Uh, theosophy sort of petered out fairly quickly or in in fr france i think uh, madame blavatsky and some of the early french uh, cosmopolitan religious leaders did not get along very well in germany 
um, once uh, Blavatsky had passed away, Ani Bizant became the uh, president of the Theosophical Society. She did not get along very well with Rudolf Steiner, who had been the vice president or the president of the German Theosophical Society. They had a falling out and he developed his own uh, religious movement called Anthroposophy. Um, monism developed in Germany was another one of these movements, but never really uh, developed in to any significant degree, to my knowledge, in England, uh, France, or India. So, th so those are the sort of the main uh, religious movements that I deal with in the book. So your your comparative examination of these movements, uh, as you mentioned um, at the outset, uh, uh, across these three parallels, what would you say is the ultimate purpose or takeaway? What are you arguing essentially in the book? Well, when I get to the second half of the book, what I'm actually arguing, I think in very general terms is that even though some of the, the motivations for these religious groups and their leaders was um, commendable. Um, I think they, they saw some of the um, negative components or aspects of industrial capitalism and a materialistic worldview and um, the industrialization of a military force. And I think those were responses that were very positive, but once they began to apply their attempts to re renovate or, or rejuvenate spirituality, they became very um, uh, bogged down in their own political environments. So in other words, the, uh, and the second thing is they were elitist in their nature. And therefore, as they became, became established in their own countries, uh, the French version became sort of this uh, Catholic-esque, I use that term in the book, Catholic-esque kind of organization that saw France as the center of this new spiritual empire that would develop and um, renovate or rejuvenate spirituality throughout the world. But it was French-based at that point. And the same is true with Ani Besant and the Indian Theosophists. They, um, the Indian Theosophists were of course anti-colonial, but surprisingly, they were not necessarily anti-empire. They envisioned a new spiritual empire in which they were equals to the British that would dominate the world spiritually, not militarily or anything like that. So the, the bottom line is that these movements in their attempt to solve a real issue and a problem became political and nationalistic in their own sort of idiosyncratic way. Would you say they became political or would you say that may have been and always been sort of underlying um, um, theme or, or motivation? I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think they're, they're inseparable. No, it's, think, it's really, it's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really, it's an open question. Uh, well, yeah. And I, and I, I think um, they, from the very beginning, you, you can probably say that's true because there's, there's not this magical moment uh, in time where they suddenly shifted to a more political um, mindset. 
So while some of their some many of their writings have these implications of political and social applications from the very beginning, so I don't think there's uh, there's ever a, a separation. I think for the purposes of the book, it was it was important to show um, their affinities because the question then becomes, you know, why compare them at all if they don't have something in common? And so I think that's why. Um, the book is separated into those two halves, but I think in many ways they were political from the, from the very beginning. I mean, Ani Bazant, way back in the, in the 19th century, before she was a theosophist, wrote um, what was for then a very radical book of promoting birth control. I mean, this was a really radical idea, and she was a, a member of the Fabian Society, a socialist group, and then she became acquainted with Blavatsky and her writing. So she was very politically active prior to becoming a theosophist. Uh, in my armchair theorizing on religion, perhaps uh, being a scholar of, of religion, my armchair is a little more um, worn than most, but in my armchair theorizing about religion in my in the back of my brain, it's always sort of the love child of the sociopolitical and the psychospiritual. And it's, you know, where one ends and the other begins, it can be, it can take a bit of work to discern that, but there are yeah. always these worldly, mundane, uh, very real and often ugly pressures and, and aspects. Uh, mm -hmm. These are what uh, are focused on when you take a hermeneutic of suspicion, for example. Mm -hmm. And then um, certainly there are other elements, more uplifting, perhaps spiritual elements. Um, this term spiritual, uh, I recently did a talk at a, at a, at a public university on, um, on Indian spirituality and its use. Uh, they were interested in its use in my particular learning platforms and coaching practice and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, do you um, do you grapple with how you're using this term, or what spirituality means, or how to define it? Yeah, I, I try to depict it the way they depict it. In other words, I use it the way they saw it. So the term spirituality, um, in how they used it, may not fit very well into a religious studies context in a different environment with a different set of parameters from a different perspective. They saw spirituality um, as something scientific, something that um, could be traced historically. Uh, as a matter of fact, the um, Bazant uh, General Hadassa, who was one of the primary Indian theosophists, Charles Barlet was one of the French um, cosmopolitan religious leaders, and then the monist um, Nobel Prize winner in chemistry, uh, Wilhelm Oswald in Germany. He won the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1909. So these are serious. This is a serious academic to be taken uh, as legitimate. They all wrote. Um, text on occult chemistry. Uh, Oswald called it something else, but they were tracing somehow the spirituality embedded in chemical processes. So this is, so I tried to stay true to their understanding of spirituality rather than trying to make a contribution to the understanding of the term spirituality in a broader academic context 
if you if you is that, that makes what I mean? that makes yeah that makes perfect sense to me i mean I, for me it, uh, you know my role is to provide a platform and space to examine the book and and and, and perhaps um perhaps uh, tease out some of its implications for other mm-hmm. disciplines and subfields. And so I ask these more generative than, than, than limiting questions. And so, yeah, I mean, I personally, I feel that it's practical and appropriate that what you're doing is you're the, um, you're not theorizing what spirituality is. Uh, spirituality correct. is actually not your theoretical model. It's your data because yeah. they're using that yeah. term. And you're yeah, presenting what, what, they, what they did with it is what I'm getting at. And um, I think one of the things that I would like to add to that, too, is all of these um, cosmopolitan religious writers and leaders, I think they were very aware of not being taken as legitimate. Esoteric religions are frequently not taken seriously and not taking as legitimate movements. And I think these people, even though they didn't specifically say that, I think they were very aware of it. And so they attempted to to create a a theory of spirituality that could be uh, proposed as scientific. That's why they wrote these texts like, you know, occult chemistry. Would you say, how would you characterize um, the relationship between science and spirituality as presented in these movements? Because you, you seem to say that they're fairly uniform in their approach. So would that be something along the lines of spirituality can be subsumed by science or measured by science? Or has it like, how, what's the relationship? Could you clarify? I, I, th- I think what they, what they were trying to do, I'm not sure I know, what the relation is relationship between science and spirituality no i mean i mean their their view there what they were trying to do is they were trying to say that they are equal partners that to separate and and they write this actually to separate the objective world and the subjective world to separate the material world from the, the physical world from the spiritual world is a falsification of knowledge that, that's what that's how they would answer that question. So they have to be uh, merged. You have to be doing both. You can't, I mean, not you, but they would say you cannot do science without spirituality. And you can't so, do spirituality without science. Yeah. So just to just to drill down on this a little bit. Would they believe that spirituality can be measured in the way that empirical reality can be? Uh, yes, they would. And, ah. and yes, they would, because th- this and this is the sort of the part of the essence of their uh, these these occult chemistry texts that they wrote. They 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 have an astonishing um, an astonishingly depth, a deep understanding of then of then current chemistry. They go through a Besant, and this was a co-authored book, uh, uh, Lidbetter, Besant, and Jenna Radasa, for instance, wrote the, the it's sort of a pamphlet-length book, it's about 100 pages on occult chemistry, and they trace all of the known uh, atoms and their chemical compounds and their chemical makeup, and then in attempt to show how 
you can find um, spirituality, and, and I'm simplifying a bit, but they, they try to, to, to clarify how that corroborates a spiritual um, understanding of the world in terms of physical chemistry. And even, even a Nobel Prize winner in chemistry wrote a book called uh, Die Energie in German, it's the energy, and he saw this, <clears throat> the chemical world, or the, or the, which is basically all physical matter, as being somehow supported by this- um, Infused with some divine world. presence, right? Yeah, Infused some kind with... of, right. you know, and, and Monis would never use that word divine. Well, it's uh, he's being um, 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 careful, obviously, for yeah. his professional purposes. They, yeah, because they always they, they rejected religion, so to speak. Yes, but they, it, it sounds like uh, it sounds a little bit like perhaps wanting to have your cake and eat it too. That's always the case. <laughs> I, <think. laughs> I mean, Great, when, so when we read when we read these texts now, we think, "Oh, this is ridiculous." Yeah, because we are so scientifically driven, but our, our, our understanding of the world is so scientifically, scientifically biased, let's say. But, the, sure. but I, they, they were very cognizant of being legitimate, I think, and trying. So that's why they, they really understood chemistry. Well, I find it utterly fascinating. And it probably in, in, in these times, this would be considered pseudoscience. We think of a yes. pseudoscience. Um, so why I particularly find this fascinating is that I teach in a variety of contexts from a variety of perspectives. So obviously academic teaching, I, have, uh, I teach undergrads here and there, I have contracts. Currently I'm teaching undergrads. Mm-hmm. Um, continuing studies at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies or um, other online platforms. And then there are more emic paradigms where people want esoterica or or hindu spirituality and in certain spaces like my online school i dovetail both here's the academic you know if we're talking about the history of of indian religions we're not going to use numbers we find in the puranas or the epics we're we're going to think scientifically about what happened on this plane and yet if i'm interpreting mythological text the 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 implications are for the psycho spiritual inner realm or the journey towards being more aware and and um i come across this every once in a while where some of my students want to express spiritual truth through scientific terms mm-hmm. so for example um, um um if there's a belief in astrology or the power of astrology it's because of the gravity of, of the of the gahas of the planets and uh they sometimes seem surprised when i say to them because i often give a great deal of spiritual wisdom teachings i say look that's pseudoscience mm-hmm. I mean, science is a methodology that um, facilitates understanding the material world and, and, and the forces therein. Yeah. And so if you believe that the grahas, the, the planets have an impact on your psyche, it's not through gravity or electromagnetism. That's ludicrous. But yeah. there may be another mode or another um, realm or another order of reality whereby there are forces that can't be perceived, perhaps mm-hmm. subtle forces, perhaps uh, it works by virtue of synchronicity when you cast a chart, right? So this, this it seems sensible to have this division of labor. And yeah. for a scientific inquiry or problem, uh, there's, there's one mode and for spirituality or we have no shortage of data for um, ESP or occult phenomenon, but we can't necessarily 
grapple with it through empirical means. So I I find it so fascinating that they were able to push this envelope in their epoch. And unless I'm mistaken, you would know best, they seem to have gotten away with it. Like it wasn't really critiqued. Um, There are uh, occasional critiques, um, even within their um, uh, own uh, cohorts. For instance, um, I think um, Sinnott, who was one of the uh, British theosophists, wrote a text on volcanoes and um, he wrote quite a bit of stuff on what we would consider um, geology these days. And, uh, but also, it, but they always use these scientific platforms to prove some underlying spiritual component to them. And I know one of the other theosophists uh, at the time took real issue with how he had interpreted um, his assessment of geology. And, but at the same time, um, confirmed that this still proves that there is some kind of astral plane or <laughs> spiritual universe that these texts show. So they, they, there. It's like you said before. There is, I think it's fair to say, in their work, it is a have your cake and eat it too, um, a kind of scientific effort. Uh, because they simply, by our expectations of what is um, justifiable scientific um, results, they they simply bent those rules pretty significantly to make their points. So um, one of the elements of the MO of um, yours truly in the podcast is uh, big picture, big ideas, 30,000 foot view, both for the sake of, of accessibility and engagement outside of the weeds of, of our particular niche, uh, but also for the love of ideas. And so in addition to the um, science spirituality tension, uh, another that comes to mind is this sacred secular divide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could you say a little bit about that in this context? Um, yes, it was actually quite important to them because they, they felt like this is a part of the uh, spiritual material divide that had made the world such a sick place in their view during that period of time. And so the secular world, they would have seen as having become material uh, obsessed with materialism and objectivity or uh, 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 the, uh, the objective world, the physical world. And they wanted to, just like with spirituality and material views of the world, they wanted to reconnect the secular world. And that's where the spiritual empires part of the book really takes um, becomes forceful in that it shows how every different movement in every different country is really attempting to reconnect the secular world with the spiritual world. And that's where these movements become political. Um, the, um, none of these people ever ran for office, not, not that kind of political, but they wanted to create a 
secular world that was primarily informed by by their version of spirituality. So I, I, so I think th I think this thread goes through everything they did. Um, anything that's not spiritual needs to be re-spiritualized, in other words, including the secular world. Were these various groups uh, simply um, in, uh, um, in isolation, a product of their times, and that's why they have this approach, or were they borrowing from each other? Um, I, I think or, or they, otherwise put, how do you account for the similarity across them? Well, I think they were bar borrowing from each other because at the time, at this time um, in, in Europe, at the end of the 19th century was publication of materials began to become cheaper. Um, newspapers and journals became more widespread and they were pervasive publishers of articles and journals. And I know some of the German theosophists had some of their work translated into English and some of Blavatsky's texts. If you go back and look at those German journals that were published by the theosophists, you will see um, some of Blavatsky's text in that time period published in German. Um, these um, texts were available um, in France and in India. And these people, for the most part, many of them traveled. So they interacted quite a bit. Um, and I'm sure there was a significant amount of idea exchange um, through those interactions as well. So it's not just they read each other's work, but I think they also interacted. Bovatsky and Henry Steele Alcott, who was an American, actually founded Theosophy in New York originally moved to Adyar or, or near Chennai, today's Chennai in India, and then back to London. And then, so there was this, it was a new uh, international network, so to speak, that emerged during this period of time. So that's, I'm sure that's how the, the ideas became um, level. Yeah. yeah. What, um, are there any core ideas or texts from Indian religions that you see influential in these movements? Um, well, it's, it's their readings of these texts. They refer to the Vedas and they refer to the Puranas and they refer to Indian texts, but not in the original text. It's their version or their reference. They quote these texts, but they quote them in their context and in their interpretation. For instance, um, one of the to to for these movements to reconnect spirituality to the secular world, for instance, they, they needed a mechanism. And that mechanism for, for most of these groups, especially the ones that were very oriented to towards positively oriented towards Indian religious thought, was karma. And they wrote a lot about karma, but I was hoping you would say that. I'm not sure it's the <laughs> karma. I'm not sure it's the karma that you would recognize in an Indian study in a, in a religious uh, a study of Indian religions. I'm not sure it's that same karma because I use the term in the book. You may have seen it, merit-based karma. I mean that's merit-based. Uh, for for instance, the German theosophists argued that um, merit determines 
your karma. And, and that's different from karmic theory in a classical sense, you think? Well, I'm not sure. Karma in so far as um, meritorious and unmeritorious or, or papa and punya or however you want to define them in English, uh, that these actions have, you know, a residue on you and then you yes. have to bear the, the results. So just so, so I understand or, or anyone listening understands when you're saying meritorious karma as different from in the Indic, uh, in the classical Indic context, how do you mean that? How do you mean well, what, I, what I do in the book is I, I don't I don't really make that comparison. What I do in the book is I explain how they used it. And what they did is, in essence, they used it as a means to explain why some parts of the population are incredibly impoverished and others are not. In other and they say this. Uh, it, especially in the German context, this is in their writings, that your karma is deserved. So if you are poor, it's, it's because of your own behavior. And um, this is where I think that mechanism becomes very elitist, because these, most of these cosmopolitan religious leaders in all of these countries do not come from impoverished classes. They're all very well educated. They're all um, in the elite, so to speak, intellectually at least. And they are, there is an element of protecting that class position in their work as well. So in your view, uh, their use of karma uh, was a convenient means of justifying their privilege and their position. Yes. And that became transformed into national merit as well. In other words, civilizations also have meritorious karma or lack thereof, and therefore are more capable of leading the empire of the world spiritually. Ah, uh, the slippery slope of the slippery slope of religion <laughs> slipping into politics. And that's the primary, if that's the bottom line of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Say more about that last thought, especially why it might be applicable or meaningful. Obviously, you know, one of the things uh, that fascinates me about scholars is they spend uh, forever uh, eking out a particular niche. And some scholars are really aware of why they care and why it matters, and some aren't. And I do my best to bring that out, irrespective of whether or not they're aware of why their book is important. Yeah. But you seem to be fairly aware of why is that important? Why is that? Why is the point of your book uh, something that we should be thinking about or, or because, in these times. Because I think, you know, my point is not to degrade religion. My point is not to um, make some kind of claim that, you know, religion is just, you know, just one more political thing that we should get rid of or, or disrespect. My point is that we should be able to recognize when religion does that, though when it does become political, when it does become biased, when it is used as a means to suppress, to um, carve out advantage vis-a-vis -vis other people or other nations. And this is uh, what these cosmopolitan religious movements at the time did to a certain degree, or at least attempted to do. They, they didn't really do it successfully, but they, they attempted to carve out this uh, position of merit among their leadership 
that then they transposed onto the British spiritual empire or the Franco-centric empire or the Germano-centric spiritual empire that should spew great wisdom to the world. But that connection becomes very problematic always when my spiritual worldview suddenly becomes imposed on someone else's. And this is, I think, what I would want people to take away from the book. Fascinating. Uh, were there any other um, aspects of the book you hoped we would touch on today? Um, I think we've just about covered it all. I, 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 the, the one thing that I would want to reiterate uh, again is, is the, the elitist element of, of these people. They were, this is true of the Indian theosophists, the French, they were all um, very elite. privileged. They were privileged and elitist in their thinking. And there seems to be this kind of underlying philosophy, ideology, or mechanism to preserve their status. For instance, the Germans um, were very keen on becoming Germanic Brahmins, for instance. And they use that term. And Isn't so that, it? Please continue. So, yeah. And so, and, and they, they also defend the caste system. They Given... say it's been, it's been abused in modern terms, but it needs to go back to its origins. Given the ethos of hierarchy and, and the, this, the, um, the perpetuation of privilege that we see here, um, uh, uh, by means of um, perhaps an appropriation of, of ideas from elsewhere, it's all the more interesting that the philosophy of moksha, karma, sansara comes not from those at the apex of a caste system, but for those who have decided to opt out of it in order yeah. to realize that wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not, the, that's not what was happening with the people that I studied. They, they saw themselves as a revamped, rejuvenated Brahmin class of leaders who would reconnect spirituality with the physical world and create an empire a spiritual empire i like the tension of of that title it's uh, as i say for me i mean i crudely simplify in order to to understand obviously everything needs to be problematized and eked out but um in terms of religion being this sort of love child between the psycho-spiritual and the socio-political mm -hmm. that's encapsulated so nicely in that in the spiritual empires right <laughs> Yeah, and in some ways it's a, it's a, it's a contradiction. In other ways, it might be quite apt in this particular case. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Yeah, I enjoyed it. For those of you listening, uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Perry Myers on his uh, brand new uh, Palgrave Macmillan book, "Spiritual Empires in Europe and India." Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening. Um, do your best to take care of yourself in these times and keep contemplating the interplay of spirituality and politics. Take care.